And so in my classroom, I've been having the students do one problem and go deep into it. And so like when we're in, they're working in groups. And so when they're in that like stage, that's when the best learning is going on, like the group work. There's like student discourse. They're using different strategies. And I'm walking around just to make sure that everybody is, you know, like some people might need a little nudge or some people just might need a little like help to get going or like I want to make sure they understand the task. In this Math Mentoring Moment episode, we speak with Jeremy Serzana, a high school math teacher at a vocational school in Boston, Massachusetts. Jeremy's been putting all kinds of great pedagogical practices into play, including having students working in randomized groups to engage in problem-based lessons and is having quite a bit of success. However, When it comes time to consolidate the lesson, the student participation quickly fades. This is another Math Mentoring Moment episode where we speak with a member of the Math Moment Maker community, a person just like you, who is working through problems of practice, and together we brainstorm possible next steps and strategies to overcome them. Hey, Math Moment Maker friends, before we dive in, have you submitted your math class, Pebble in Your Shoe? If you haven't, head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor so that you can hop on the show just like Jeremy's hopped on today so we can talk about your current math class struggle. Once again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. And let's do this. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers from MakeMathMoments.com who together with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver problem-based math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. My math moment maker friends, we are looking forward to diving in with a fellow math moment maker to discuss the current pebble that's kicking around in his shoe. Yeah, definitely. And this is a common pebble that many teachers have. We've talked about it also on previous episodes. We've talked about it, Kyle, in our Q&A sessions monthly that we hold with our academy members. This common problem about what happens at consolidation times. Like, how do I do that part better? I think a lot of the community right now, Kyle, throughout the work that we've been sharing and the work that we've been getting from lots of folks, like in this episode, you're going to hear Peter Lilladal's work, The Thinking Class from reference. We talk indirectly about the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematical discussions. There's so much great work out there that are helping teachers get lessons started, put the right things in place to make it successful for your students. But then the consolidation comes and it's like, well, how do I keep that engagement going? And how do I do that well so that kids aren't like hitting the snooze button again like they were maybe before I started making these changes. Like, I want that piece to be better. So we talk talk about that here in this episode, and you're going to get a kick out of it. Yeah, absolutely. We are not going to tell you too much more, but do pay attention when we start talking about maybe some of the pieces to be thinking about before the lesson and some of the really intentional moves that we're going to suggest that Jeremy makes during the lesson in order to set himself up for a really awesome consolidation, which can look 
a few different ways. So let's not waste any time there, John. Let's dive right in and let's hear it here from Jeremy. Hey there, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us this week on the another episode of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. How are you doing, Kyle? Oh, goodness Now, this gracious. is a little bit weird right now. We're starting the podcast episode, and if you're watching us over on YouTube, because we're going to leave this in, there's a cat that just jumped up on my shoulders. Oh, my gosh. Okay, sorry about that, Jeremy. Yeah. What's crazy is John doesn't even have a cat. Where'd the cat come from? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry about that, Jeremy. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing excellent, and I'm very excited to be on the podcast with you guys. Fantastic. So we need to know before we get going, we always want to get sort of a sense of who we're chatting with. And of course, the audience wants to know who we're chatting with. So give us a little heads up, like where are you coming to us from? What's your current role? And I guess what got you into this crazy world of math education? Okay, yeah. So I'm coming from Boston, Massachusetts, and I teach at a vocational high school. It's called Madison Park Vocational High School. It's in Roxbury, which is a neighborhood in Boston. And I'm a 10th grade geometry teacher. So I also co-teach. So there's two math teachers. and Very cool. Yeah. So it's an inclusion classroom. So there's some students in special education with some moderate disabilities. And so I have a math license, but I also have a special education license as well. I went to Berkeley College of Music. I was like, so I'm a guitar player. Oh, nice. Music. Yeah. And yeah, basically it. I, my partner, her name is Teresa. She's my fiance and we have two greyhounds. So so. If I had to guess, we're not going to see a greyhound jump on the back of your chair. Today. Like John's got the cat rocking. Just jumped off. Paisley the bullpuggle was roaming around recently. So who knows? She might show up, but who knows there? I got to ask you about Berkeley because Berkeley is like a pretty prestigious music university college. I know... The music geek's going to start coming out, Jeremy. Yeah, I know. Like all growing (laughs) up and when I was playing in a band and stuff, like I would always like look at Dream Theater and I loved like John Petrucci and that whole group. I feel like the whole group was from Berkeley. And I think maybe Ian Thornley from Big Wreck, I think may have went to Berkeley. I'm not sure, but fantastic. That's your band. band, Tell me a little bit about that. So was that like the plan? Like, were you thinking like, I'm going to go and do some crazy in music? Was it music education? I'm just curious more as an aside here. Since I was like a young kid, like nine years old, I played guitar and I grew up watching like MTV. So I was all into those like hair bands and all that stuff. So yeah, by the time I got to high school, I started really getting into the guitar. And, you know, I just uh, like my senior year, I was like, oh, let me just apply to Berkeley. And I got accepted. And it was just like, it was a great experience. Just being in the classroom like for four years and just like soaking in all that information, it was like an unbelievable experience. I love it so much. Awesome. I bet. I'm so jealous. So good for you. Jeremy, can you pivot for us a little bit here? Like I am always curious on backstories before we get into the deeper conversation, but music student becomes math teacher. Can you fill us in on that part of the journey? Like, how did that occur? Like, where did that pivot happen for you? Like, it's foreign for me and Kyle because both of us studied mathematics and then went into math teaching. So it's foreign to me to hear about a music teacher who's like, you know what? Math teaching is my calling. Yeah, I mean, so basically I graduated college. I never wanted to be or I never thought I would be a teacher. And it wasn't like, I want to be a teacher. I was just literally like went to Berkeley and I was like playing in a bunch of bands. So I was having like a lot of fun playing like gigs at night and everything. And then. I was like, fine. I was like, I guess I'll get a day job. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I 
This sounds like, wait, Kyle, I think they made a movie about this. It was called School of Rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And you were funny. a supply teacher filling in for some other supply teacher. Well, literally, though, like I graduated, I had like I got a bachelor's degree. I had a friend that was like substitute teaching in Boston Public Schools. So he was like, why don't you look into that? And yeah, I did it. And I liked it right away, like working with the kids. Yeah. Fantastic. So I'm wondering, too, like, so I think there's a huge advantage to those that bump into teaching maybe later because they fall in love with like working with the kids, which is something that I think. I was missing initially out of the gate. Like I know I was one of those teachers that I was like, I like math. And it was like, I'm going to teach math, but it was more about the math. And then it was like, I learned to love teaching the kids. And it's almost like you kind of maybe got a little bit of the opposite where it was like, Hey, I like working with kids. And it seems like maybe math sort of kind of settled in, but I want to go back to your experience here a little bit in the math classroom. I'm wondering, so you went into music, you studied music post-secondary. I'm wondering, like, how about you as a math student? Like, what math moment sort of comes to mind when you think about your experience? Like, was it a positive experience for you? Was it a negative experience? Did it just even, some people are just like, I don't really remember much at all. Like, it just isn't something they think of. When we say math moment to you, what pops into your mind from your own personal experience? Yeah, so... I think I was a pretty good math student. Like I was very good at the procedures, like the algorithms. So I could do all the algorithms. I could do the like long division. But uh problem is I had no, like looking back, I had no number sense. Like Kyle, I know you mentioned that. Like if you had given me as a kid, like 1,000 minus 997, I would have stacked them up and did all the crossing out. Then got three, but like I wasn't able to like think about the relationship between the numbers and a number line, maybe just three away. So. Right. That's such a common thing that I think. And as a musician, too, a lot of people always say like, oh, like math and music are really tightly interwoven. But I also had this experience as a guitar player, bass player, where I was like more of a memorizer. Like, I don't want to say that was the reason that I couldn't do something bigger with music, but I now realize I was like, oh, like just the sense, like the musical sense itself wasn't kind of there. Like I was very like, I would memorize how to play the song versus feeling the song, like the same idea in math. So I was kind of like that. Did you find yourself like, was that the same or different for you as a musician? Like, did you memorize more so, or like, did you feel like it was more of like a mix of both or what was that like? Yeah, I would like literally memorize the song. So every song was just like a new thing. When I went to Berkeley, I was starting to make those connections being like, oh, like, this is just this chord progression. But like before, it was just like everything was like completely new every time. So I just had to like memorize the song. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I can see that translating into math because when you were speaking about that, like, I think we're all on the same page that way. Like we all, I think, were memorizers and kind of regurgitators and the fluency for us wasn't really there until later. And it wasn't developed like at that time because it wasn't developed for us back then. Like I didn't feel like we put an emphasis on fluency as a not a memorizing, but a way that we confidence in moving with numbers or moving with expressions or having that, like I have fluency, like when I speak fluently or play music fluently and interpret songs or listen to a song and play it, I know that I tried to learn the guitar and I could never do that. 
I was like you guys, I try to memorize the progression and then just try to repeat that. But that fluency wasn't there for us, I think. And I think that's an important thing. So I'm wondering, Jeremy, how does that moment of your memory of being that memorizer, how does that influence your teaching today? So, I mean, when I first started off, I was very just teaching like procedures. That's all I knew. And I didn't have that conceptual understanding. But I mean, one thing I do want to say is that I was like in eighth grade, I was taught how to use the area model, use like when you're multiplying polynomials. But I didn't realize that it was like an area model. I was just basically... Box method. Yeah. But that method was able to help me factor by just in my head. Or at least there was that. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Yeah, I definitely can relate as well. Like, and I looked at them again as all these strategies and all these methods to me were all very isolated events. So kind of like going back to your chord progression idea where it was like, oh, this song, you do this and this song, you do that. Like not being able to sort of see that like, oh, there's actually this song is very similar to that song and the chords progress this way versus that way. Same idea. Like I used to use these methods for factoring, having no idea that what I was doing was essentially the same thing that I could have been doing for whole numbers or like making some of these connections that now seem so obvious or so intuitive to me. So I want to start digging into this conversation. You are on a math mentoring moment episode. So I think it's only natural for us to kind of flip it back to you and sort of get a sense of what's on your mind lately in the math classroom. There's always something that we're thinking about, but what's on your mind right now? What's that pebble that's kicking around in your shoe that we might be able to shake out together here tonight and try to help find some next steps for? Yeah, so in my classroom, I've been doing just having the students do one problem and go deep into it. And so like when we're in, they're working in groups. And so when they're in that like stage, that's when the best learning is going on, like the group work, right? Like there's like student discourse, they're using different strategies and I'm walking around just to make sure that everybody is, you know, like some people might need a little nudge or some people just might need a little like help to get going or like, I want to make sure they understand the task. So that's great. But then like, as soon as we come back together as a whole class, yeah, like you guys said, it's like sometimes it's like crickets, right? It's crickets and like, and also like somebody's like speaking, it's kind of like the sense making goes out the window. Gotcha. And you're trying to like, hey, how do I make that better? How do I keep the engagement going during that portion? Like, is that the real issue that's happening there? Yeah, because it's like, it was just great learning going on. And then we're trying to like wrap it up and then it's just like, 
then people start going on their phones and everything, you know. It's like, oh, now he wants to say something. And like all of a sudden now everybody sort of stops doing the thinking. Gotcha. Jeremy, let's go back just one step here. Could you think back to a recent lesson, maybe one that you did and just walk us through, like, feel free to tell us the topic, feel free to tell us maybe even what the prompt was that you were working on. Just give us a picture. Yes, we were working on transformations and multiple transformations. So it was just a very simple task. There was a content, but I don't think I'm in a context, but I don't even think you really needed the context. It was just a triangle. It was going to be reflected over the y-axis and then translated two units up and three to the left. And then like the main idea, we're talking about like, I guess, things being congruent. So we were trying like the main idea of that lesson was like, is the pre-image congruent to the image, the final image? And when I set up that lesson, I was basically having them draw each transformation. So I was trying to make that like concrete. They were drawing. And so about the end of the lesson, they were able to notice that it's just the same shape, but just like reflected and translated up. So I'm wondering, and I'm getting a good visual, so I really appreciate that. So kind of getting a sense, and it is a geometry class as well. So on some recent episodes, we've discussed this idea that sometimes things can be, when they get abstract, sometimes context becomes maybe a little bit more difficult to sort of create or emerge in a situation. So I'm envisioning students working on this. And I had a vision of you, as you mentioned, going around and it was like almost you're kind of like listening in, monitoring, and kind of like you had mentioned, like maybe nudging this student. So it might be like asking the student something specific about what they did, or you saw them do something. You might ask them like, hey, like, why'd you do that? Or this student over here is kind of looks like they're not really moving yet. And maybe it's like asking them in another way, right? Like rephrasing the prompt or, hey, what do you think might be a good first step? So I'm picturing all of that. I'm wondering... What does it look like or sound like when you make that transition? So I'm going to guess here that you've looked around the room. You see that some people have either they're either in the process of doing some of these transformations. So maybe there's a student who's like halfway there, right? Like he did maybe the first two. So he shifted it this way and he did whatever the first two translations were. And then these groups are done. What does it look like when now you want to bring them together? Because this is kind of like, we call it like one of the most important parts of the lesson where it's kind of like trying to, and it's the hardest part of the lesson too, I would argue, right? And it makes sense that you're kind of like, I'm not sure where do I go next with that? What does that look like or sound like when that is happening? And then I guess when it goes to crickets, like, is it sort of like, uh, hey, everybody, it's time to share out or... What does that sort of look like and sound like as we start to shift towards that part of the lesson where we bring it all together? Yeah, so we do have a just like a timer in the room. So I'm like when I launch a lesson, I'm going to be like, okay, we're going to have 15 minutes and like go. And then when that timer goes off, I know where everybody is. So sometimes I'll be like, okay, we're going to do another five minutes and I'll set the timer again. But then once I feel it's time to wrap it up, you know, basically wait for that timer to go off and then... I just start talking to the class. I'm like, okay, guys, why don't you focus your attention up here? And then sometimes we have the students bring their whiteboards up to the board. So then sometimes I just kind of like try and like talk about the main idea that we were trying to get across. Right. 
So, okay. So that paints us a picture. And I think I get the timer because I don't actually set a timer visually for the kids. I kind of monitor the time on my end and, and go, okay, like, because we've talked about that in the past too, on past episodes where sometimes teachers think, okay, well, I'm going to do this problem-based lesson. I'm going to get the kids thinking. And then we ran out of time or it went too far. And it's like, I didn't get to talk about the big idea before we left. And I get that why you might want to put a timer is because we want to make sure that we're going to say, wrap this up and make sure we got some consolidating happen before they walk out the door, especially at a high school environment. I think that makes a lot of sense. I wondering in that same lesson, could you paint us the picture of what that, Hey, we wrapped up. Now we're here what that looks like for you. Like, what does that consolidate look like for you? Like when you said, let's talk about the big idea. Can you maybe describe how you've done that in the past? Yeah. Like basically it hasn't really gone too well. I'll just say that. So but like, (laughs) that's why we're here. We're going to make it better. (laughs) But like I envision, like I did just finish the building thinking classrooms book. And what I envision is that just everything that he talks about that, like you launch the lesson when everybody like huddled around you and then they go to their whiteboards and then when it's time for the consolidation piece, you do that gallery walk. And as you guys say that, like you're thinking about which pieces of the student work you want to look at. So, I mean, that's what I envision, but like, I'm definitely not there yet. Yeah. And trust me, like I'm having visions of my own many years of like, not really, to be honest, like I didn't know. And not feeling comfortable in that piece, right? Yeah. Right? Like and I almost when starting feel like that, it I feels up, uncomfortable. I ended up like essentially skipping that for a long time just because I just wasn't sure what to do. So, I mean, trust me, like we're with you there. We totally get that feeling of like, okay, things are going on. And I guess what I'm realizing now as we're going around and as we're asking these questions and as we're nudging students, it's like at the same time, And I guess before the lesson as well, like thinking about what is the big idea that we're hoping to kind of reveal. And like when we talk a lot about the curiosity path and the curiosity path is a way to engage students. So to get students to kind of come with us on this journey, because at some point we want to like reveal some mathematical truth, right? So it's almost like in my mind before the lesson begins and when we craft this prompt or it might not be a prompt I've created, maybe I found it or the textbook had a great prompt there. And it's like, when I bring that prompt here, it's almost like, what is it that I'm hoping that I can share to the group or that I can ask specific enough questions where I can emerge it through the questioning to the group? So it's kind of like in my mind, you're going around the room and you're seeing all the student work. You're kind of seeing where students are, like where maybe some of the hiccups are, but then you're also seeing some of the successes and maybe the groups that have had a lot of success. I'm in my mind going like, okay, I'm probably not going to give them the floor too early in this process because I don't want them to sort of come in and sort of rob the thinking of the whole group. But what I might want to do is it's like, I want to ask a question to the entire group and I want them to turn and talk. So this is where maybe the crickets might go away a little bit where I think about like, okay, I saw the entire group was able to do the first two transformations or the first two translations. And I'm like, okay, I want them to turn and talk. And I want you to explain how blank And then again, that sort of like keeps that fuel going where it's like, okay, there's still a little bit of talking and then you get to kind of like listen in still. And then you go, wait a second, wait a second. Hey, Samantha, can you share what 
you were all talking about in your group. And it kind of like you're almost tricking them into they don't feel like they're sharing out to the group. They're turning and talking to their individual groups. But then you sort of you don't ask them. Now you're saying, hey, what I just heard something really cool over here. Do you mind sharing that out to the group? And it's like you're kind of like using them as a means to scaffold towards this bigger idea. And it might be maybe where some of the groups sort of fell off. And then that's where the other two groups that were kind of maybe had a couple steps ahead where like you can maybe have them and say like, well, I noticed that you did this or you were able to get from here to here. I'm wondering, what did that look like when you were discussing this in the group? Like, how did you know to do this or to do that? So it kind of builds on what you were already doing in the group. But it's in order to, again, like get you closer to that big idea, that mathematical behavior that you're hoping to emerge. For example, you had mentioned congruence was a big idea here. And it's almost like you could have this great prompt around what do you think? So depending on what translations you gave, you could pause and sort of say, at what point did you know that the image was going to be? congruent or wasn't congruent or whatever, like thinking about these prompts about at what point, what told you? And like some kids might be like, well, I knew right from the start because I was going to be scaling this point by whatever value, but I wasn't scaling this point or whatever that might've been. So I'm going to pause there. I just want to kind of get your thoughts there because I've got this like vision of your class and I'm sort of picturing you at this place where it's almost like rather than it being like a hard stop, right? Which maybe even like trying to like keep the timer to yourself or something where now it's like you just start reframing the questions. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Does that make sense? Or is there something happening else that we're not aware of that maybe might hinder that idea? But what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that's perfect. It's just kind of like, instead of that hard stop, as you say, it's just kind of like, almost like they don't even know that we're like, transitioning just basically like okay i would say something and then give them a prompt and then have them turn and talk just keep that going i love it and something i love being able to do as well is like at some point and sometimes some days it might happen early some days it might happen later but it's always nice to like eventually have something for you to add that sort of like raises or elevates the conversation. I think sometimes we worry that it's like, well, it's not supposed to be teacher-centered, right? Well, your whole lesson wasn't teacher-centered. Like you did such a great job making it student-centered. And it's like, at the end, it's almost like, I want to comment on what they said, what they said, what they said. And do you notice what's happening here? And that might be the part where you kind of emerge this generalization where you go, wow, based on what you just said, it sounds like what you're saying is, and then you get to kind of reiterate that. And that might be the point in which like where everybody goes, hey, everybody, that note to your future forgetful self that Peter talks about, that might be like that point where you go, wow, that's something I think we got to get this down because I don't think I'm going to remember that a couple of weeks from now, like what you just said. Can you say that again? And then you can reiterate it with them and sort of get the whole group kind of like, where they feel like they're truly contributing some of these main ideas while you're there, you're still the mastermind sort of like molding what that looks like or shaping what that conversation looks like, because you knew that we were going to talk about congruence and about why this series provided that these steps made it congruent at the end, or they didn't, 
And then maybe having, again, like another prompt ready as well. Like we call them consolidation prompts. So it's like, what about if this one was congruent in your groups? I want you to take some time and talk to your neighbors. And I want you to create a series, like start with a pre-image. And I want you to create a series of transformations that are going to produce something that's not congruent. Like, how could you guarantee it's not going to be congruent or like, and I want you to write about that, right? So it's kind of like that shifting towards, instead of it being like about getting the right answer to the problem, you were like, the whole point of this was for us to come up with this generalization, this behavior of mathematics that now you're like, oh, again, it's like that chord progression, right? You're like, I now know the chord progression. I don't just know the song. I know something deeper than that. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Yeah. And I like how it's like kind of asking like specific questions. Like you said, when did you notice that it was going to be congruent as opposed to just being like, are these congruent? Yeah. And another thing is since you're setting off at the beginning of this task to know what big idea you're trying to emerge. And also at the same time, you're trying to think, and I know that we have it in our mind. Sometimes people write them down. Sometimes I don't, or some people don't, but in my mind, I definitely, I were like, okay, when I know my students have captured the big idea. What does that look like? Right. I will know this group of students or this student has the big idea or the skill. Maybe it's the skill-based lesson, right? And that's what this will look like. So sometimes it's going to depend on your lesson, what that consolidation might look like. So for example, I've had lessons where I was doing a thin slicing type activity with like out of Peter's book or like a problem string. And I wanted students to solve equations when the equations were created very carefully to lead into the next. And by the end, you're solving more complex equations. By the time you get there and you're seeing students and working with students, it's almost like I know this group has got the big idea. They are solving two-step equations fluently, consistently. And now it's like, I don't need really to consolidate as a whole group now. If I'm moving from group to group going, I know that group's good. I know that group's good. Oh, they, they're they finished that part. All right, here's your next step to keep going on these ideas while I'm over here with this group trying to consolidate with them if they need it. So there's like that type of lesson, right? Where you're kind of like, sometimes it's not a whole group thing. It can be just like making sure everybody gets to where they need to go in the time that you have. So I've definitely done that. Whereas I don't think I need a full group here because we all got there. And that's sometimes that fluency on the fly, like fluency for us in this way we're doing this. Like I sometimes plan, I'm going to have that big consolidation if all of a sudden a lot of groups don't get it. And that big consolidation might be, okay, we're going to come back to the board. The timer went, right? We're going to come back to the board and maybe I'll have a small little math talk and I'll say, okay, like what Kyle suggested, it's like, oh, you guys were doing, can you guys tell me or share that strategy? And then you're mimicking on the board for everyone to see. And there's that kind of whole group 
consolidation. Hey, that strategy worked here. Does it work over here now? Hey, let's try another one. Everybody grab your marker, grab your pencil. Let's try it this way on your page right now or I, my desks are dry erase desks. So we write right on the desk, which is really nice. And so it's like that can work that way. And by the end of maybe just these prompts that was now all of a sudden whole group because you needed to bring the group back together, then giving them small prompts too, instead of like asking questions for like, Hey, can you tell me, raise my hand here, raise my hand. Oh, I know. Oh, it's me again. I know it's me again, right? Instead of that being more active, being saying like, okay, we just saw that strategy. Now everyone tried this one. And then you walk around a little bit more. And so you could even send them back to the wall space at that point. So I've definitely had lots of different experiences where the consolidation can happen at the board with a small group. It can happen in the big group and we go back to the board or it can happen individually as well. So I think it depends on you knowing or remembering what is the learning goal I want What does that look like when I know it's a success? And then making sure that I take lots of different ways that I can move lots of different ways to make that happen for my students. And there was something that kind of popped into my mind as you were talking there, John. I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that is so true. Like where sometimes like the mini consolidation, especially in a case just like Jeremy's finding himself in sometimes where it feels like crickets, it's like those students might be hearing you better. You might do the same MIDI consolidation in four different groups as you're walking around the room, right? Where it's sort of like, it's hard on you because you're like, I feel like I just said this three times, but they're looking at you. And we all know that the smaller the group, the more people feel like you're actually communicating with them and they become less anonymous, right? They, Peter talks about that in his book, this idea of the anonymity of sitting in a desk in a chair. It's like when you have that like small group and you can look, there's three kids and you can keep looking them each in the eye. It's like, I'm talking to you, like all of you. And that conversation might be more fruitful that way. And something I'm going to throw out there too, just that like, as you get these lessons going, it sounds like you've got a great thing going with the thinking classroom idea, like getting kids actually thinking, working in groups, maybe standing up at the boards, all of those things. And it's almost like always thinking before the lesson about like, why does this lesson matter? Like when you just kind of ask yourself that and sort of go like, if I don't teach this lesson, what are kids not getting? And I think it's really easy for us to look at the lessons more from the skill-based side of things, especially as we get in the older grades where it's like a lot of things feel skill-based, but it's like, there's always like something there. I think that we can like latch onto. So whether you choose to do it in the mini consolidation groups or whether you decide to do it as a larger group, it's so like to highlight something, it might be the model, like the mathematical model that was helpful. It might be a strategy, like a strategy you see emerging or that didn't emerge that you want to make sure they now see and have and encourage them to try it. Or it might be like a behavior of the math, like a mathematical truth that like, wow, when this happens, when I do this, I can expect that to happen. And it's sort of like, those are kind of the things that beforehand kind of helps you with setting up your prompts, but then also bringing it out at the end versus if I go in and I kind of just only see it as a skill-based lesson, and I kind of don't think about these other pieces that are kind of underneath the surface, it can feel more like, again, it was like a problem to get done versus like we did this set of learning. Like it was less about the answer you got and more about the realization we just had where we're like, 
oh, like that is what's going on here. Like that's that to me, the end of the curiosity path, right? Is when they go, oh, like something here just happened. And that's like kind of the fun part for you as the educator is try to tease that out. And sometimes kids land on it. And that's awesome. Like that you feel like a superstar when that happens. Like you're like, I didn't even have to say anything. But then there's lots of times where it doesn't, right? Where it goes like right over their head and they get an answer, but it's like they kind of missed this pattern that is like right before their eyes. So we're going to pause here. And what's going on through your head right now? There was a lot said, a lot shared here, but we want to make sure that like, how are you feeling right now when you think about this and think ahead to maybe some of your lessons, how this might influence maybe some of your planning and delivery of your lesson? Yeah, I really like what you said, how like kind of thinking of not as like a get done thing, but more of like kind of like a bigger idea or maybe making it, you know, finding like a mathematical like truth or something like that. I guess in this particular lesson, we were talking about congruence, but I think that the task, it was just kind of like at the end, they were like, oh yeah, they're congruent. But it's just like, I think could have gotten more out of that lesson, you know? So you're wrapping your mind around thinking about the big ideas here. And I'm wondering here, Jeremy, if you think about some of the suggestions we've had, I'm going to push you to be a little bit specific here and thinking of like, you went back to the class. What is a change? What is it something that you're going to like put into place from this conversation to help with that consolidation piece starting, say, tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I may. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Like now. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm not going to do that hard stop. I'm going to maybe just give them like, have them do like a quick turn and talk. And also I'm going to be thinking in my mind, like as like the students are working, like maybe specific students and specific work. It'll be, can you share like what your strategy as opposed to, you know, kind of forcing kids to share their ideas with them. I've done that one a lot. And I think kind of an add on to what I've done is if we do pull them back to a whole group, because you want to highlight you want to make it very clear, right? It's like, this is a strategy that can work well, but having a kid explain it to you and maybe you want to emerge a model or maybe you want to get this one of these big ideas is one that I've used a lot is when the kid is explaining it to the group. It's like, could you just talk about that strategy? I model it on the board in live time. What I find is beneficial there is because if we go over to that board, that work is already done, right? Like it's already shown in full solution format and everyone else is seeing it that way. You're explaining it, but it's still a full solution. It be like overwhelming, right? Yeah. And like so when we get done, so we might do that, but then when we come back and I have a blank board in front of me and they ask them, Hey, can you just walk me through? We are solving proportions today. So it was like, okay, you know what? It was a unit rate problem to start. And I wanted to show the model of a double number line and show this. I wanted to, one of my big goals with my students solving proportions is I want them to be very fluent in moving along the number line with a multiplication type strategy. Some kids are doing additive strategies still. And I'm like, let's move along the number line here in, in this way. Let's make Make sure that we can see the relationships along that number line. So when the student was explaining the strategy, they had found a unit rate to help solve this problem. And so I said, okay, let me model your thinking here up on the board. And so then now the whole class can see that solution unfold using a diagram that I was trying to emphasize as well. So it's kind of like they see it in live time instead of post solution time when you're kind of outlining it that way too. I kind of picture it and I'm making a lot of these like musical artistic references, but it's like, I picture, especially with your background there, Jeremy, like, it's like, this is your opportunity throughout the lesson to really be an artist, right? Where it's like, you might've had 
in your mind planned it a certain way. So you should have a plan coming in, but it's okay if that plan doesn't happen that way, right? So it's like you get to kind of like pivot. We always talk about pivoting the plan because of what's happening in the classroom. But what we don't want to do is come into the lesson and just sort of hope that it'll all kind of come together the way it should, quote unquote. But it's like, what does should even mean if I don't know ahead of time of like, so you have like almost like your plan and you're like, okay, I'm thinking kids are going to emerge this idea, this idea, and I'm going to highlight this idea. But then as the lesson happens, it's sort of like you get the freedom to kind of, as John mentions, like you get to go to that group and say like, Hey, can you share? And we always advocate to like for asking kids to share something specific about what they did instead of it being, cause that you had also mentioned, like we used to, like, it's like a show and tell when you kind of go around like, Hey, group one, like share what you did. And it's like, they could potentially talk for 10 minutes. Right. And it's almost like, I think that also inspires the crickets because a lot of kids are like, I don't even know where to start. We did a lot of stuff. So then they start from the beginning and it's like, you hear a lot of the same things being repeated over and over like that group, like group one and two, like group one, two, and three, we did this. So it's almost like you were like, I saw right here. And like, you could literally point to it and be like, right here, tell me what was happening here. And then as John mentioned, that might be where you're modeling over here. And this is that artistry piece where you're kind of like going, I like a bit of that. And I like a bit of this. And when I bring these two things together, it's going to help me kind of get to this place where I can show that behavior or whatever it might be. So lots and lots going on here. I hope you're as excited as we are about it, but like, I'm excited for you because I feel like You've got some things to chew on, probably too much to chew on. So don't try to make it all happen exactly in one way. But just by thinking and reflecting on some of these pieces, I feel like you'll be in a good position to at least kind of keep that conversation going in your classroom and get the kids turning and talking. So I heard some big takeaways from you already. I think that's great. I think by maybe hiding the timer a little bit and sort of like playing with that transition a little bit, I think you're going to find something that works really well for you and your students. So I'm wondering here, before we sign off, what would you say is your biggest takeaway from the conversation? And what are you most excited about your next lesson when you try to apply some of these ideas? I think my big takeaway is asking a student a specific thing to share. And I think that's going to just like help me so much in the class. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Awesome stuff. That's great to hear. And actually, Jeremy, we'd love to check in with you, say next year. I know it sounds like far away, but maybe like in 12 months, reconvene back here and we see how you've progressed using these takeaways. And then also probably, obviously, you're going to learn so much more in the next year as we always do from year to year. So what do you say to that? Are you up for checking in next year on this? Absolutely. Yes. I'd be very happy to. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. And of course, we will be in touch. I know that you've been doing some awesome work inside the academy and doing all kinds of learning in there and doing some sharing in the forum, which is awesome to see. So we will, of course, still be in touch and sort of alongside you on that learning journey. But just for those who are listening to the podcast, be great to get you back. And sort of, I got a funny feeling there will always be another pebble, right? So we can always talk about where you've come, how things have changed, and then what else is sort of kicking around in those shoes. But I got to say, it's been a pleasure. I met somebody who went to Berkeley now. 
like virtually. This is super cool. I love it. Hope you have an awesome, awesome. We're heading into our spring break shortly. I'm sure you are soon too. And we will definitely be in touch and we'll see you around in the Academy. All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Awesome stuff. See you soon. Awesome stuff. Well, Math Moment Makers, as we mentioned in the intro, I hope you found that this episode has been helpful. It was great to bring on a Math Moment Maker who's doing some pretty awesome things in the classrooms, getting his kids talking, selecting and sequencing student work as they're going and helping to nudge some students and help to kickstart some thinking over in different groups, doing all kinds of great things. But just like so many of us, that consolidation is a doozy. It is, I would say, one of the most challenging but most important parts of our math lesson. And the reality is, is it can look a few different ways as we discussed here. So hopefully you found that there was something of use there that you can grab, something to bring into your own classroom. We'd love to hear from you. So make sure that you're reflecting on what you're doing and maybe go ahead and share some of those reflections with us by commenting on the blog post that goes along with this episode or under the YouTube video or on social media at Make Math Moments, where we like to engage with all kinds of math moment makers just like you. Yeah, that's a great recommendation there, Kyle. And if you are also looking to chat with us about a pebble in your shoe, just like Jeremy did here, then don't forget that you can fill out a form and apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. The form is really a chance for you to just share what is that struggle that you're working with that you want some feedback on. And then that just comes to us. And then we see if that fits. We don't pick everyone that comes in, but just because we want to keep a variety going. But hey, throw that in there. You never know. We'd love to chat with you about your pebble. So again, you head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor, fill out that form, and we'll chat soon. Awesome stuff. And friends, show notes, links to resources, and complete transcripts to read from the web or download and take with you can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 177. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 177. And of course, if you're watching this, be sure to hit that subscribe, hit that notification bell on YouTube, and we will be in touch with our weekly YouTube videos. All right, folks, as we uh, normally wrap up our episode with Kyle and I doing our high fives for us and high fives for you, Jeremy here from this episode wanted in on the action. So uh, awesome stuff, Jeremy. You're going to take my place in that. So Kyle, hit it. Kick us off. Here we go. Well, until next time, Math Moment Maker friends, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm Jeremy. (laughs) High fives for us. And high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat 
if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.